we're going to be talking about today is uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how do we present that to someone who's not a Christian, who's not a believer, and from their angle, right, resurrection is not only miraculous, it's, it's impossible, it's kind of ridiculous, outlandish, and so they would have questions or objections or comments about that. So what might be something your friend or coworker or family member might say regarding the resurrection, right? Um, would it be a question? Would it be an objection? And what would that sound like, okay? So just kind of jot that down either in your phone or on paper. Uh, take a minute to do that. And what I'm gonna ask you to do is hold on to that, hold on to those questions. And as you go, if, if I address the questions along the way, great. If I don't, um, just feel free to, you know, whenever, whenever there's an opportunity to raise that question, please do so. So take a minute, write down some uh, you know, possible questions people might raise or objections they might raise about the resurrection. So let me go ahead and pray, and we can go ahead and get started, all right? Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering us to uh, spend some extra time in learning how we can better just communicate your, your gospel and when needed to defend your gospel. Uh, so give us wisdom and more than, more than that even, uh, a heart of compassion and love uh, for our neighbors who need you, who either haven't heard the good news or haven't received the good news. Just prepare us to love them and to give them the answer that could help them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, I'll, make, I'll make three points. The first point is um, how the resurrection is historical. And the second, how it's, it's actually believable. It's not irrational. Right? Um, and lastly, how it's actually beautiful, uh, how it can actually change us. Okay? And if you were here last year for our Easter Sunday service, this might ring a bell. But if you were asleep, it might not. <laughs> so um, we'll see. All right. So first point is the resurrection is historical. It's historical. It happened. Now, um, uh, some of you have heard this before, but it's worth repeating or being reminded of. The fact that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus were women. Women. And uh, so if you look at this passage in John 20, Jesus appears to Mary and in verse 16, uh, he calls her name, right? Uh, he, he doesn't reveal himself in a general way, but in a personal way, right? He identifies her, shows himself to her, tells her, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, right? She's the one announcing it to them, right? A woman. And this is even someone who was formerly known in her town all over the place as a woman who was possessed by seven demons. Right. Now, the reason why I keep emphasizing women eyewitnesses is because women back then, as you know, have very low status. Uh, so their testimonies were actually not even admissible in court. Um, not in Roman jurisprudence or in Jewish jurisprudence. So here's the thing. If the disciples were going to make up a story 
a fake story, like fake news about Jesus' resurrection, okay? And they want this story to go viral, right? Uh, in this Greco-Roman world, the last thing they would do is build their whole case on the initial testimonies of women. That's the last thing they would do because uh, that would get them nowhere. Right? And, and there were men who actually mocked them for having women announcing to men the resurrected Christ. So why would John and the other gospel writers, if they were, if they were writing a legend, developing a legend, write the resurrection account with this at the centerpiece, right? Uh, women as eyewitnesses. And the only reason is because that's how it happened. Um, Mary saw the empty tomb, she saw the angel, and she, sh she met the risen Christ. Well, it, can't, it can't be a legend, it just doesn't make sense. Now, um, the other thing about the historicity is the dating of the Gospels. Now, remember when we talked about the reliability of the Bible, when we started this series, we talked about dating. So this is how historical science works. Um, so you have things like um, the Peloponnesian War, right, by Thucydides, the Athenian War in ancient Greece. And there are about um, eight copies of those, um, earliest copy dating from 1,300 years after its original writing. Only eight copies, and the, and the earliest copy is 1,300 years after the original writing. Virtually no serious historian today disputes these events actually took place. If you were to deny that these things took place, you would be, you would be fake news, right? Same with uh, Caesar's Gallic War. It was written some 900 years after the original with only 10 copies, 10 copies of the, of the manuscript. And, and again, this is like historically cemented as like it's canonical. This is undisputed history. Now, how many ancient Greek copies of the New Testament do we have? Do you guys remember? So, of the, yeah, Greek copies of the New Testament manuscript, over 5,000. Okay, that's five times, <laughs> that's what I said then. And, and earliest dates for the Gospels, right, about a century or so after the original event took place, okay? So, that's 10 times earlier than Thucydides. Uh, and, the, and these are um, complete manuscripts, uh, if, we, if, we, if we count fragments as well, uh, they go even earlier. So the significance of the early dating, okay, is this. Um, virtually all the historians agree, this gives the account of the resurrection too little time to develop as a legend. It, it takes a long time for something to become legendary because let's say there's a legendary claim about me surfacing, right, 20 years later, right? Uh, John Kim is a seven-foot-tall uh, NBA basketball player who, who sc scores average like 40 points a game. Well, what's, what's wrong with that legend? Um, one, it's not going to go anywhere because I'm still alive. Right? <laughs> you can just go check you know, whether that's true. It's too easily falsified if it's too early. But if, let's say, it was a story told about me some thousand years later, some people might believe that, right? So, so the thing about Jesus' resurrection is it started circulating much too early. Uh, 
with m way too many names, specific people you can go to and, and corroborate uh, facts with, just too early for uh, things to become legendary. So Richard Bauckham, he's an ancient historian at Cambridge, and he authored this book titled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So if you have like a lot of time during the summer and you want to pick up a book to read, uh, that would be one. And what he demonstrates in that book very, very well is if you look at the various genres of literature during this time, during the Jesus' time, you'll be able to tell immediately uh, what falls in the category of history writing and what falls in the category of legendary fictional writing. And the way that these disciples write the New Testament right, is clearly not legendary. Um, so in, for example, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, his letters were written during his lifetime, and um, it was already circulating in the early church, and he says this, Jesus appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the 12, the 12 apostles, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He appeared to his brother James, and he appeared to me. Why, why these names? Why this level of specificity? Well, that's so that you can go talk to them. Go talk to them. They're alive. Go talk to them. And that's just not how you write legends. Right? Go, go talk to people and corroborate. Right? Um, uh, so that's something to consider. Here's another thing. Last thing about the point of historicity. For these Jewish men, in this Jewish context, for them to go from worshiping Yahweh, right, in this monotheistic context, to worshiping who once walked the earth, this man named Jesus Christ, is blasphemous and punishable a lot of times by death. It's just not something you would just for fun choose to make up and, and believe and, and go preaching to people about. You don't suddenly become a Trinitarian who believes in three persons, one God, when all your life you've been taught there's only one God, right? It's Yahweh, right? Um, this kind of shift, this cultural shift, this paradigm shift, this, this spiritual shift, it's really hard to explain how this happened to this many people in this early a time uh, other than the fact that they encountered the resurrected Christ. And, of course, this is a mystery, like, for a lot of historians. How did Saul overnight go from persecutor of the church, right, to the greatest missionary Christianity has ever seen. Um, they're baffled by that. And they try to explain it in a way, like because they don't dispute the historicity of Paul. They take him seriously. Even atheist scholars take Paul seriously. And the thing is, they, they, they're trying to come up with al alternative explanations. Okay, maybe pa Paul felt guilty about killing so many Christians. right? And so he's just ridden with guilt. He's depressed. And in that despair, he... He pretends like he's seen the risen Christ and takes that to martyrdom, you know. Uh, now, does that, does that make more sense? <coughs> or, or his actual, when you look at his actual writings and teachings and, and, and the works that he's done, um, the people he's touched, um, and his testimony, does it seem more likely that conversion, that transformation is due more to his actual encounter with Christ? Okay, so, so those are some historical data that you can... Try to memorize, I would say. Try to keep in mind because uh, a lot of times the question that you would get from people is, dude, that's, that's a made-up story. That's just a made-up story. Disciples made it up. Okay? Um, and, and I think that's when you can try to bring in some of these factors and try to show them 
You know, I, I don't know how that would work. I mean, if they were making it up, why would they use women as their first witnesses? Um, why would there be so much detail that's falsifiable? It just doesn't make sense, you know, and, and bring up some of these things and see how they react to that. Um, did you guys write any questions down that relate to this more historical point that we can maybe address right now at this point before we move on? I mean, you answered, how do I know it's not a myth? So yeah, yeah. Um, so some have actually decided Jesus, the whole identity of Jesus is a myth. Um, so they're, I think they're sometimes called mythicists. Okay. Uh, Jesus mythicists. So that's sort of this hyper-skepticism. And the thing about that is even serious atheist scholars uh, find that ridiculous. Uh, so one good example is Bart Ehrman at UNC Chapel Hill, very well-known New Testament scholar, an atheist, argues against Christianity a lot, often. But another thing he also does, he argues against uh, people who believe in Jesus being a myth. And what he tells them is, stop embarrassing yourself, right? Because history is a science, and you got to take that seriously. You can you can argue from other angle and say God doesn't exist or the Bible isn't true, but saying Jesus didn't exist is just not going to help. Right? And he's he's an atheist saying that. So uh, usually when people bring stuff like that out, they're getting their. I, I would just ask them, where did you get this? You know, because it's probably some atheist blogger <laughs> just kind of um, wrote an article online and that's it. It's not peer-reviewed academic journal. I mean, if you yeah. said that, you'd have to throw out a lot of history. Exactly. That's not biblical. Right, right. So I, I would bring up, you know, yeah, do you, so do you believe Caesar is a myth? Mm-hmm. Plato is a myth? Because there's a whole lot more data for Jesus and Paul and, and all this stuff than, than we have for these things. So, yeah, there's a way to talk reasonably about this, rationally about this from a historical point of view. All right. Any other questions about that? Or All right. So now let's move on to the second point, and, and that is the, the resurrection is believable. Okay. Um, and this is a separate point from the first point because, you know, I don't want to just suggest that the resurrection is believable only because it's historical. Okay. Uh, it is believable because it's historical, but there's more to it, and there are other reasons to believe. And so to show you what I mean, let's go into the narrative about Thomas the skeptic, okay? Good old Thomas. So let's see. Um, where does he start showing up? Verse 24, right? So can somebody read for us from verse 24 to 29? Thank you, Sam. Um, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thank you. So Thomas is asking for, basically asking for two things. I got to see him and I got to feel him. Then I'll believe, right? Um, and, and this is actually a very good summary of two really popular truisms uh, that even modern people believe in. That's very popular today. And they are seeing is believing and feeling is believing. Right? Seeing is believing, feeling is believing. Okay? So if I see it, it's true. If I feel it, it then it's true. Okay? Two truisms. That dates all the way back to Thomas the skeptic. Okay, it's not some postmodern thing that postmodern people came up with. It goes back to Thomas, and Jesus addresses that. So Jesus's approach is very interesting here. For one, he does appear to him. Right? He he does offer his scars for him to feel. Right, but then he also says this in verse twenty-nine: "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." So Jesus is saying it would have been a greater blessing, and, and the Greek word for blessing is happiness. It means happiness. It would have been happier for you if you believed without seeing or feeling. And that's really interesting, right? Because uh, on the one hand, Jesus is not withholding evidence, right? Like I, I mentioned the historical data earlier. Here, there's some more. He's showed up. He's literally showing up. But his bigger point is it matters more for you, for your sake, if you believe without seeing or feeling. And, and I thought a lot about why this is the case. Um, and I want to just expand on some of the thoughts I had on this with you. Um, it's really as if Jesus knew what was inherently wrong with these two truisms. And he's sort of deconstructing it for him. So first, seeing is believing Ironically, if you think about it, it has a logical problem built into it. Seeing is believing. As logical as it sounds, has a logical problem built, built into it. Um, and feeling is believing, as truthful as that sounds, has a relational problem built into it. Okay, so let me explain what I mean by that. Seeing is believing has a logical problem. What I mean? Um, I shouldn't believe something unless I see it unless I see some kind of evidence for it. That principle, right, uh, is that logical? It's really not. Here's why. If your ultimate, of, ultimate standard of belief is seeing is believing, I gotta see it to believe it, then you've already violated your own standard because seeing is believing is unseen. It's believed. This principle, seeing is believing, this principle is an invisible principle that you just believe in. Does that make sense? So the principle seeing is believing is already unseen, yet you believe it. But you shouldn't because it's unseen. Does that make sense? Okay. So in a way, you're shooting yourself in the foot as soon as you say, you can only believe what you see with your physical eyes because you don't see with your physical eyes principles like seeing is believing. So you shouldn't believe it. Okay. So uh, to put it differently, if your ultimate standard is to doubt everything that you cannot see, then you should really doubt this principle because you don't see it. Right? You believe it. Um, 
Now think about why that would get into the way of living a blessed, happy life. Because Jesus said it would be happier for you, more blessed for you if you didn't believe this. Because you see, for one, um, this truism will forever keep you cynical without ever helping you be cynical about your cynicism. It will keep you doubtful while never helping you ever doubt your doubts. Okay? Um, you'll be led to believe that you can see through everyone else, right? but you'll never come to seeing through yourself. Okay? You doubt everyone else, everything, you never doubt your doubts. You'll be skeptical of everyone, but never skeptical of your own skepticism. Okay? So basically, you live in a very self-absorbed, self-centered, self-empowering life. Your truth is all that matters. Okay? All you see is all that matters. Okay, and and um, and what that's going to end up doing is it makes everyone else uh, vulnerable to you, but you're not vulnerable to anyone else. You're excluding yourself, isolating yourself, pushing people out of your reality. That's no way to live a happy life, a blessed life. Um, so the problem with this truism: one, it's not logical, and two, it isolates you. Uh, so. Jesus, when he says, unless, uh, Jesus, Jesus' approach to Thomas is, Thomas, you, you should really know that when you say you're really believing um, really, you know, strongly in this doctrine of, you know, seeing is the only way to believe, um, you're not seeing it, you're believing it, right? So uh, any skeptic or atheist or agnostic who hold this view, I got to see it to believe it. They have a logical problem on their hands. So you may have a friend that like that who comes to you and says, you know, how do you believe in something like the resurrection un unless you see the resurrected Christ? And for them, the historical data is not just not good enough. You know, i got to see it to believe it. Well, the problem there is, well, then you can't believe most of history that you haven't seen, right? That's one problem. But the other thing is that's just not how you operate in real life. Um, you, by saying, seeing is believing, you're already believing in something you can't see. So to be a consistent, consistent believer in seeing is believing, you should deny seeing is believing. Right? I know it's, it sounds a bit like play on words and you're being maybe a bit, I don't know, uh, uh, tongue in cheek, but it's really not. It's really helping people uh, become more self-aware about their doctrines that what they're holding on to is really not all that defensible. Uh, it's really not all that logically consistent. And, and it's one way of loving our neighbors is showing them, I think you have an incoherent worldview. I think you have a principle that you don't fully believe, believe consistently. And that's a problem, right? Uh, lovingly correcting that. All right, so there's that. All right. Um, and, then, and, then there's, and then there's a problem of um, feeling feeling is believing okay um and and we've already overlapped with this a little bit but it's it's not too different from seeing is believing okay so with feeling is believing it puts a greater emphasis on your emotional experience okay so this is you know i don't need to see it i don't need to study it i don't need to dissect it i just need to feel it i need to feel it okay um and again jesus doesn't deny Thomas, the feeling. He says, you know, put your hand on my side. Place it in my side, right? In other words, feel me. Use your senses, right? Uh, but the problem with this truism, and the reason why it's better that you don't believe when only you feel, it's relationally flawed, 
there's a relational problem to feeling is believing. Um, which is ironic because our culture tends to think, you know, uh, it's only true if you feel it, right? Uh, if you don't feel it, then, then it's, it's not valid. Now, that's actually very dangerous to think that way, relationally speaking. Um, here's why. Um, the simplest way to put it is feelings change. Feelings change, right? So it's one of the shakiest foundations ever to build a relationship on. And Jesus is telling Thomas, stop trying to build your relationship with me on feelings. Because feelings come and go. Feelings come and go. And I don't want our relationship to just come and go. So every meaningful relationship, it's going to be truly relational, truly lasting, and truly healthy. It's got to be grounded in something more secure than feelings. Okay. And, and that sounds so counterintuitive, especially, you know, what we hear in our, compared to what we hear in our culture today. Because when you, you know, listen to our songs, watch our movies, read our literature, love is really more of something you feel, right? Uh, more than something you commit to, more than something you vow um, and promise, it's something you primarily feel. And so what happens is your promise is built on the foundation of feelings rather than feelings being built on the foundation of the promise, right? So what happens then is if feelings are the foundation, when the feeling goes, the promise goes, right? If the feeling disappears, the promise disappears. But what happens when your feelings are grounded in a promise? When the feelings go away, you still have something to hold on to. And that's a good relationship. That's a good marriage. That's a good friendship. That's a good church membership. Um, that's any good relationship, right? That's blessedness. That's happiness. Not building your relational life on sand, basically. Right? So the, the common example I go to is this Justin Timberlake song, you know, can't, can't stop the feeling. Right? Uh, I got this feeling inside my bones. It goes electric, <laughs> wavy when I turn it on. Okay? I, I can't stop the feeling, so just dance, 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 dance. Right? It's such a good song, right? Except he's, he, until the point he says, I don't need no reason, don't need control, right? It's just something magical. It's in the air, it's in my blood, it's rushing. Right? So, so this basis of this magic, the basis of this love, the basis of this dance, what is it? The feeling. The feeling that you can't stop the feeling. Okay? Well, uh, if that's all you got, right? You know, JT, I'm sorry, but, you know, you're in trouble because... The feeling that you can't stop the feeling can actually stop, <laughs> right? The song stops, the dance stops, the feeling stops, it all stops, right? Um, you, got, you got to have something stronger than feelings. And, and you know, anyone who's married would tell you, man, that, that honeymoon feeling, that, that feeling we had when we were dating, that feeling we had, the passion we felt during engagement, Man, it's hard to feel that at the same level, you know. They'll all tell you that. And, and part of that is because a lot of what we are feeling during uh, and what James is feeling during engagement okay, <laughs> um, is, is the initial excitement of forging your life with someone else's life, and the excitement of journeying together for life, right? And this is a very precious season in your life because there's that anticipation that is so fresh 
and so immediate and so in front of you. Um, and that's good, and that should be celebrated, but that does wane over time because we function very seasonally. Human beings function very uh, differently over time. Our feelings change. Our psyche changes, and, and feelings change, and cir circumstances change, and your character changes, and that's normal. And it's so important for us to know that that's normal, that fu emotional fluctuation. Otherwise, what's going to happen is what a lot of people do is once the feeling goes away, they start questioning their relationship. They start going, maybe I, maybe I married the wrong person. Because if, if I was with the one, this feeling would never go away. But it is going away. So maybe I'm with the wrong one. No, that's not what you should be saying. What you should be saying is feelings change, and that's normal. And I don't have to you know, uh, paint this person I'm married to as the wrong person just because my feelings are going up and down. That's very, very key, uh, especially during the first four or five years of marriage. So again, um, feeling is believing, relationally very detrimental, very dangerous, very harmful. And Jesus is saying it's, it would be happier for you if you didn't live by this model, if you didn't live by this truism, okay? Um, questions about that. So the point there is the resurrection is believable apart from these two truisms is what I'm saying. And it's actually happier if you find it believable apart from these two truisms. You, have a, you would have a more fulfilling, meaningful, lasting relationship with your God. Because we do see people, you know, leaving the church when feelings go down, uh, when they think what they see is all they get. Uh, church, is filled, church is a hospital. It's filled with uh, sick people, spiritually speaking. So if you only go with what you see, what you feel, you, you don't have a lot going for you. That's why we live by faith, not by sight. And if you're living by faith, you have a lot going for you. Lamar, you had a question? Yeah. yeah. So you think, articulate this, articulate this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think when it comes to Christ, right, he's, uh, he's Savior and he's Lord, do you think we are in that middle stage of just feelings when we only see him as just saved what he does for me versus now I see him as Lord like he he owns you know what I'm saying it's regardless mm -hmm. it belongs to him mm -hmm. you think it's like the in between how you see God mm -hmm. when you're stuck in the feelings mode you know what I'm saying yeah that's a good question um, the so the the comforting thing about God in our season of like low feelings, downness, is that when you look at scripture, you find he is actually not any less present right. when you feel him less. Right. He's just as present. Or if he doesn't speak to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and it's interesting how you use the word see just now was more like seeing, like, oh, I see it. Like, mm -hmm. I understand it, right? Yeah. And that kind of seeing actually helps us uh, speak into those seasons, speak into that feeling. Like, so Psalm 42, um, as a deer pants for water. And that means as a deer is dying of thirst for water, so my soul yearns for you, right? That's an understanding, that's a seeing that God can satisfy this, this downcast soul, right? Even though my feeling is so down, I'm so drained, I'm so exhausted, I'm spiritually so empty, 
I know, what I know about God is he can still satisfy me if I go to him. So, that, so that's your walk with God. It's just as active. It's, you're just as married. You're just as, the relationship's just as true, right? And that's the beauty of it. Uh, our feelings really do nothing to distance us from him. He's just as close as ever before. Yeah. If I could, yeah, as I'm please. That, it makes me yeah. think of, um, you know, Mormons mm. say that you know the Book of Mormon is true because you feel that burning inside, and so. Great example. And I've heard, you know, Christians trying to argue for the faith, and they'll say things to unbelievers like, "Well, you're, you'll know that it's true because the Spirit will make you feel something," but that's yeah. not always the case. And yeah. So I think it's really deceptive if you're just waiting for that feeling. Yeah, I. That's a very, very good point, point. Uh, and it does. It, it should keep us from only <coughs> telling people, "It's true because I feel it to be true." That's a, that's a bad witness. Because you won't always feel saved. Yeah, you are. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And and you give other people permission to simply live by how they feel, mm-hmm. right? And the conversation ends there. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel this way. You feel that way. Uh, bye. <laughs> that's it, right? But that's a, that's never how Jesus evangelized. Uh, not affirming people's feelings. He, well, he actually offended a lot of people's feelings, actually. Uh, so, well, that's another topic, but. Yeah, that's a good point. Joseph, yeah, go ahead. So I know especially in today's context, there's a lot of people who are very skeptical of, and I I understand we did cover the topic of historical reliability and, like, whether Jesus was indeed a myth, according to some people. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of, like, verbal validity, like, a lot of these, um, a lot of these, like, or I guess recorded um, the documents are, of course, based off of verbal claims and verbal mm. witnesses. Mm. So, how would we able to? How would we be able to substantiate the validity based off of these verbal arguments or these verbal witnesses? Yeah, that's a good question. How, how about you guys try to interact with that? Just what do you guys think? I swear you touched on this like five weeks ago. Mm. We were uh, maybe it was the last session. You were giving us information on all the different manuscripts. And how they validate Christ and okay. Uh, those are my notes. Okay. <laughs> Any other other thoughts for Joseph? So, like the even the recorded stuff is originally it was oral, like tradition, and then someone wrote it down. So, what you mean? So, how do you? How do you? I mean, because of course you'll have like if you really do think about it in context, there it's kind of circular in thought. I mean. Again, we did cover the, the topic that circular reasoning is still a val- valid form of reason. But um, you, we, like, understandably, like, a lot of the, the eyewitnesses and a lot of the testimonies that were covered and that were recorded were, like, sort of, um, like, I did this, you know, like, this happened here because I, I personally did this, you know. But then how do you know that in itself is valid? So it's like... Uh claims by the author about what they did, where they went, things like that. Yeah. Because I think, like, I think there's, um, well, yeah, I think that's I guess you're valid. It's like, one thing is, I guess, there's four different accounts, and they sort of validate each other in, like, they're describing the same events, and so that's one thing. And then there's, like, historical evidence saying, like, certain people in these accounts really existed or certain things really happened, like the census or whatever. Um, but I guess, like, at the end of the day, you can't, it, like, 
fully, like in the end, like if, if someone wrote you an uh, eyewitness account and you say, well, how do you, or even if someone stands in court and says like, you know, I, I'll tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, to tell me God. How do you really know if they are telling the truth? It's like in the end, you just, there's always like, and then you have, you just put together other pieces of evidence and then you say, okay, this person seems to be telling the truth, but you can't really know for, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. There, there's a, at some point you're standing on a precipice and you just decide. But so, what, but what we can do is help them build that evidential case if that's what's that's hindering them. And so, uh, yeah, I would just go back to referring to like the specifics that's mentioned in the Bible, like regional names, people names, because this was circulating much too early for people to not think, you know, I can actually go check that out. Like, so the Syrophoenician woman who was, who had a daughter who was just miraculously healed, right, by Jesus. Well, you can go in that region, go into that town, right, or you can go to the Samaria and find the Samaritan women who had five husbands and, and f confirm some of these things. So there's just a bit too much detail here for, uh, for people to just hold back from, you know, well, I can't check these facts. These are just individual claims. No, you can't say that because these individuals are actually putting a lot of specifics in there. Um, now, when it comes to the oral tradition and the verbal tradition, the, the, the thing about the Christian tradition is very early on, it was actually very much a written tradition. And so here's a, here's a verse that always just kind of gets me kind of excited. 2 Timothy 4, uh, 13. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy, when you come to me, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. And there are various things like this that he writes in his letters. Bring me the books. What books? What parchments? And, and when, he's, when that plural is referring to a collection of letters collection or co collection of books, and more likely than not, it's referring to the Old Testament, but possibly also uh, the writings of some other apostles during that time. So this idea of you know, the, the Christianity being built on a written tradition is something you see very early on in, in the church history. Um, the, the, the last point I was going to make was that uh, um, Jesus' resurrection story points us to the beauty of Christ. Uh, Jesus is beautiful. Um, and... And I, let me just try to make this a very summary point. What, it, what is the first thing that Jesus says when he appears uh, to them in this passage? It's, peace be with you, right? He's not coming up to them, right, who just basically, like three days ago, betrayed him and sold him out and ran away from him and all that. You traitors, you doubters, right? You cowards, you lukewarm Christians, right? or you a little faith. No, he says, peace. Peace be with you. Don't disbelieve, believe. Right? Don't distrust, but trust. You can trust in me, in my promises. Right? Make me the foundation of your belief, more than what you see, what you feel. Right? Make me the object of your faith. And Thomas, upon hearing that invitation, and letting go of just the seeing is believing, feeling is believing, he kneels down and responds, my Lord and my God. This is the only time he worships him. Right? You're God, I'm not. You're the center, you're the foundation of my truth, not my, what I see, not what I feel. 
because those are fallible. Okay. I'm going to let you control this process of conversion, not me. Right? And that's when he truly converts and becomes a worshiper of Christ. Okay. So the beauty of it is Christ conquers us not through sort of intellectual superiority, overwhelming with us, uh, us with emotional experiences, but with, him, with himself, with his peace, with his peace. He brings us to trust him. That's the beauty of the resurrection. It points us to him. It points us to him. Um, and that takes away our, our fears. And part, part of this is also, it's okay to have doubts about what you see or don't see, doubts about how you feel or don't feel. That's okay. Peace can still be with you. There's still peace for you. Right? Um, in, in the end of the, the return of the king, um, where, where Samwise Gamgee, he wakes up and, he, and he, he believes that his journey was a failure, right? And he failed, everything's lost. But he wakes up, he finds his friends surrounding him, right? And Gandalf is there, and he, and he says this, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened... The thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, <coughs> his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing he sprang from his bed. Okay. If the resurrection is true, this is going to be our end. Everything sad becoming untrue. And that's why the resurrection is beautiful. And that's what we should ultimately hold on to and have peace in. Because what we see in this world, what we feel in this world, will only discourage us. But when you look at the resurrection, you find something beautiful ahead of you that you can hope towards. You will wake up and find everything sad becoming untrue. Okay. Let me close there uh, with a quick prayer. Right? God, we pray that you would help us use this uh, for your glory and for your kingdom and for your mission. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get ready for Sunday worship.